My name is Jim Cascarini. I am um, married to Kate, and uh, I lead the kids and youth work at church. Okay. My wife and I um, actually came, came here as students and, uh, many years ago. <laughs> so anyway, looking like that, I don't know how I got such a hot wife. But anyway, so um, we came here in about 90, 95, 96, something like that, many moons ago. Um, but welcome to the new students who are passing through. Um, hopefully lots of you uh, will, this morning will uh, hear God speaking to you and you want to kind of come and join what we do at Winchester. We are... Um, we are looking at a series um, called "Challenging," ch- called from Revelation, and t- this morning I'm talking about challenging churches from chapters two and three. Um, just to remind you, the type of literature that Revelation is—it's kind of apocalyptic literature. It um, would have been a style of literature that would be very familiar to the readers and the listeners of the first century. If I said to you, "Once upon a time," you would kind of instantly know what kind of literature that was. That would be kind of fairy tales. And actually, lots of the language in Revelation, lots of the pictures, lots of the symbolism would have been fairly, kind of a fairly common pattern to listeners of the day. Fortunately, we're looking at chapters 2 and 3, which actually are some quite clear um, letters from Jesus to the early church. Now, Christians respond in different ways to the book of Revelation. Um, As John Groves said a couple of weeks ago, some people kind of go, oh, it's so difficult that I'm just going to tune out. I'm not going to look at Revelation. It's too complicated. Some people go the other way and and get kind of quite obsessed by the detail. And that can sometimes lead to a slight unhealthy um, kind of obsession with things and trying to um, fix some of the details um, to precise events in time. Um, John Groves even said that he had someone in his church many years ago who produced a computer printout of the, the kind of the end times, and he's kind of stretched out in John's lounge, t- telling him what was going to happen. Well, this morning we are going to look at what Jesus said to John. Now, John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. John was someone who knew Jesus. He had. He had, he had grown up um, with Jesus. He was one of his disciples. He was one of his closest friends. He would have read the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel, uh, as he, wrote, as he read his, uh, wrote his own. He was also there at the time when Jesus was crucified. Jesus actually said to John to take his mother into his home. John was there at the tomb. He raised Peter to the tomb to see the risen Jesus. John was there when some of the disciples would, met, would have met the risen Jesus as he was resurrected and met with them. He was there um, during the, trans, the transfiguration when Jesus was, was kind of glorified and went up to heaven. Yet Jesus, John is now encountering Jesus in a totally different way, in a, an awesome, majestic way. He is meeting the glorified Jesus, the heavenly man. Phil Moore, in his commentary on Okay, Ree, I think you might have to click. Um, Phil Moore, in his commentary on Revelation, says this. There is a real danger that unless we see Jesus in the pages of Revelation, we will worship him as he walked on the earth yesterday and not as he reigns in heaven today. And we want to, this morning, encounter and meditate on that risen, glorified Jesus. Just on, as an aside, I do really want to plug these commentaries by Phil Moore. Um, how, many, how many of you have read any of these commentaries? Let's see a show of hands. It's name and shame you. Fantastic. Okay. If you have not read any of these books by Phil Moore, I, I can't over-egg them enough. They are amazing. In fact, I believe in them so much, they've transformed my quiet times that I've actually brought my entire collection of Phil Moore commentaries here. 
So if any of you are too lazy to order one off Amazon or haven't really got a Bible reading pattern, come and grab me after church and I will happily lend you a commentary to take away. Uh, It's revolutionized my time uh, with Jesus in the Word of God. My times with him were fairly sporadic, weren't very organized, but actually the way that Fillmore writes, really short chapters, they're amazing. So come and see me after, after church. Fantastic. Okay, Um, constantly through the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, there's this little refrain that says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this morning, that's what my prayer is for us, that actually we hear through the Holy Spirit what God has got to say to us this morning. So let's just pray, let's just commit ourselves to to God. Lord, we want to thank you that you are a living, active God. Lord, we want to thank you that you are our Heavenly Father, yet you are also the risen glorified Christ. We thank you, you are also the amazing Holy Spirit who works in and through and amongst us. And Lord, we just pray, have free reign this morning to have your way in this place. Do your work amongst your church in Winchester, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so in the book of Revelation, we, in chapters two and three, we've got seven letters in kind of like one extended letter. Do you like receiving letters? I don't often write letters. I've kind of got dodgy left-handed writing, and writing is really awkward. But when I get an actual handwritten letter, not a text or an email, it does really mean something to me. And actually, I really, you know, after Christmas, I sit down and write my thank you letters, um, and it's a bit of an effort, but, and a lot of blood and kind of sweat goes into those letters. Um, so this week, I actually received a letter that I had written um, and actually got redirected back to me. Um, which is rather annoying because I put a lot of work into it, but I think it came down to the fact that my wife, who makes her lovely homemade cards, stuck some silly paper clip on the front, and actually it meant that the postage was, uh, took it up to a small package, not a letter. So it kind, of, it kind of went to my aunt and uncle, who weren't in, then it went to the sorting office, and then a note went to them, and then they didn't bother to pay the postage on it because they thought it was a, cat- a free catalogue or something, and so then it eventually got redirected back to me. So this letter's been on quite a journey around, you know, from here to kind of Tunbridge and then back round. Now, this, um, the, the letter to Revelation actually would have been going around these seven churches, a little bit like around the route that a courier would take. So kind of going from Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Sort of whoever would have delivered this letter from Jesus would have gone around those churches roughly in that order. Now, Imagine being in one of these churches. Getting a letter from Paul would be exciting, wouldn't it? And actually, you'd probably be in the congregation when the letter was read out, and it'd be really amazing to hear. But actually, in the book of Revelation, these are, this is actually a letter from Jesus. Imagine being in one of those churches where the words of Jesus himself were read out. Some of you might have one of those red letter editions of the Bible, where all the words of Jesus are in red. And actually, you know, if you If you look through Revelation, you can see those bits where Jesus is actually speaking to his church personally. So it would be amazing to actually hear these words spoken into your congregation. So, what about these churches? Are these letters just relevant for seven first century churches, or do they speak to us today? Well, I believe that Jesus has got things to say to us as Hope Church, or if you're a visitor or as a student here this morning, um, he's got things to speak into our lives corporately and individually. So... What I want to do is to now start to look at a few areas of some of these letters and what God might want to say to us. Now, um, we're big Bake Off fans in the Cascarini household. Any, any Bake Off fans? 
Yeah, fantastic. Okay. And those hardened Bake Off fans will know that at the end of each Bake Off, Mel and Sue do this kind of thing where one of them gives the good news, who's the star baker, and one of those who is going to leave the competition. Now, it was kind of intended that Grover and I would be like, a bit like Mel and Sue. So two weeks ago, John would do the encouraging things to the churches, what, what the good things that Jesus says. And then I'd kind of be a little bit like... I think I'd be Mel, a bit like Mel, and um, say that the challenges to the churches. But John being John kind of drove a cart through both messages and kind of said, talked about how God encourages us through challenge. So that kind of, I was like, oh, great, Grover, you've used all my lines. So we, what we're going to kind of do is still look at some challenges, and hopefully I'll just take it from a different angle from, from the angle that John Groves used. So, these seven churches, what are they like? Well, a very, very brief summary of what these churches are like. Um, Basically, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus generally has really, really good stuff to say about them. So, I'm not going to touch on those two churches. Um, We've got Ephesus, which um, I'm going to explore feeling a bit cool towards God and cool towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pergamum. The Christians there were kind of camouflaged in their society. Thyatira, there was compromise going on in the church. Sardis, well, there's not much good that uh, Jesus says about Sardis. He says that they're dead. And um, Laodicea, there is complacency. So we're going to look at these seven churches all together. My main point for the message this morning is this, that we've all got areas individually and corporately that we either slip into or we might be living permanently in. But Jesus wants us to repent, which means to turn around from what we're doing and go the other way. He wants us to kind of overcome these challenges and within his strength, within the grace of God, actually to walk forwards with him. There's a a little refrain in each of these letters where Jesus says, to him who overcomes. And I believe actually today, individually and corporately, in Jesus' strength, we can overcome some of these challenges that we might be facing in our Christian lives or these habits into which we've slipped. What I found fascinating when I was looking at these churches was often the state of the city reflected the state of the church or vice versa. And often in these letters, Jesus draws a parallel between the churches and the cities. And so actually, as I was thinking about Winchester, I was thinking actually the Lord might have stuff to say to us corporately as a church, maybe based on what our city is like as well. So as you, as you are listening to what these other churches are like, do be saying to yourself, Lord, what do you want to say to me? What have you got to say to us as a church this morning? John reminded us two weeks ago that Jesus walks amongst his churches. In the book of Revelation, there's a picture of Jesus, a bit like a high priest in the, uh, in the temple, walking amongst these lampstands, which were symbolic of the churches. And like the Old Testament priest would do, he'd sometimes trim the wicks, he'd relight lamps that had gone out, he might even snuff some out. And actually, the, in, in Revelation, there's this picture of this active Jesus walking amongst his churches, doing his work amongst his people. So tonight, today, we want to hear Jesus' voice speaking into us. So let's look at the first church then, Ephesus. And I want to look at calling in Ephesus. What was the city of Ephesus like? Well, I've got a few holiday snaps here to show you. Not really. Um, So Ephesus had been um, one of the big centers of Christianity. Um, It was a massive city, population maybe around a quarter of a million. Um, All these cities are on on the kind of um, western side of Turkey. It was about the most important city in western Turkey. And this is a picture of the Library of Celsus. And you can just see the amazing facade. Imagine walking into a building as impressive as that. Here's Here's one of the amphitheaters in the city as well. It was also famous for the Temple of Diana, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. So it was a very, very big, impressive city. What was the church like? Well, the church 
Sorry there. The church um, was spoken of highly. It was one of the centers of early Christianity. There's the letter to the Ephesians that we can read in the New Testament. By around the early 2nd century, Ephesus was held up as a great example of the Christian faith, of life and witness. It was full of action and good deeds. When Jesus looks at the Ephesian church, he's pleased. In verses 2 and 3, he says that they've been standing up against false teaching in the church. They're zealous. Their zeal is undiminished. They value sound doctrine. They endure suffering. One thing, though, that the Ephesian church won't endure is false teaching. And in a way, it's, sometime, it's actually within that that she's lost her way. Jesus says this about the church in Revelation 2. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So in their keenness for truth, maybe in their keenness to point things out and to adhere to sound doctrine, actually they've begun to lose their love for one another. Love is the one quality without which all other qualities are worthless. It's interesting to note that it's only in this letter and in the letter to Laodicea where Jesus actually threatens the church with destruction. And maybe this is because love and devotion are absent in their fellowship. So what is the challenge to us from this letter? Well, like those at Ephesus, are are you really, really keen to be right, but sometimes that that pointing out things in other people's lives has actually led to a kind of a cooling in your love for your brothers and sisters? Do things about other people in the church annoy you? Do you get wound up easily by rubbing up against other people in the church, habits or um, repeated things that just seem to get on your nerves? Well, are you yourself walking closely with Jesus? Often a critical spirit in ourselves is actually a sign that our own relationship with God is calling. Are you remaining filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you spending time in the Bible on a regular basis, getting to know Jesus through his word? While rightly being concerned for truth of the gospel, we must keep in check that we don't forget that at the heart of that gospel is love. Paul, in The book to the Corinthians says this, If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, then I am nothing. So I believe Jesus would say to us, if you are feeling the challenge of God on on a critical spirit, to repent, to turn around from that. Even now as I'm speaking, you might have people in your head that you're thinking... Yeah, actually, I wasn't right when I spoke to them about that. So I would encourage you, after the service this morning or over the next coming weeks, speak to someone, email them, say sorry, get right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Go on to the next church. Well, Smyrna, well, Smyrna is pretty good, so we're not going to mention Smyrna. Um, There probably were things that weren't right because the church is full of sinful individuals that are being transformed to be more and more like Jesus. So I don't think it was a perfect church, but for, the, for the, the, kind of the thrust of this letter, actually Jesus just commends them and encourages them to continue to dig in. So we're going to leave Smyrna out this morning. Let's go on to being camouflaged at Pergamum. So what was the city of Pergamum like? Well, it was, um, if, if kind of Ephesus was a bit like, like the New York Um, then Pergamon was a little bit like Washington. All the kind of imperial power was 
kind of centered around Pergamum. The imperial power was centered there. There was a high acropolis in the center, surrounded by many temples, which would have dominated the views in the city and the surrounding countryside. Um, Jesus actually describes it as being the seat of Satan. And although we don't really know what that means, it could partly be to do with the Roman power, the Roman Empire, that actually it was so dominant that um, Jesus saw that as something that the devil actually used for his ends. Here's some remains of the Temple of Trajan. Pergamon was also a major centre for the cult of emperor worship as well, which was popular in the, in the Roman Empire. And if you were a Christian in that city, you would have been facing that, that pressure to go and worship the emperor as the son of God, whilst believing that Jesus is the only true God. Other powerful institutions beside the Roman Empire existed around there. There was an enormous library, a centre of learning. Actually, the name Pergamum gives its name to parchment, um, it was, there was a famous healing ministry of the priests, uh, kind of an, a, te- a temple to Zeus, the saviour. There were kind of all the trappings of an alternative society, catering for mind, body and spirit. This is the massive Pergamum altar, which is actually in a museum in Berlin, uh, dedicated to the city of Pergamum. So there were these, just these massive um, kind of areas of um, challenge for the Christian church. Many of the local inhabitants would have been proud of their city, yet if you were living in that little Christian community within the city, then you would have felt a real threat from the city around you. What was the church like? Well, Jesus, in the book, to, in the book to, of Revelation, um, sees some Christians standing firm in the society. One member, one member of the church, Antipas, was actually martyred um, for his faith, which is mentioned in the letter. Um, however, Jesus does have stern words for his church. He says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Now, we don't massively know much about the Nicolaitans, but their teaching is apparently the same as Balaam, who is quoted there from the Old Testament. Now, Balaam led God's people into sin. And if you want to look that up further, it's in the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers 31.16 and Numbers 25.1-3 have got a couple of passages about how Balaam um, was, was used to kind of lead, lead God's people into sin. Christians in the church were being tempted to maybe just blend in with the society around them. They might have been challenged with, what's the harm in kind of blending in with society? Surely I can take part in my normal civic duties, um, including emperor worship, doing just enough, but just withdrawing from some of it. Everyone else does it. There's no point in standing out. Why should I put my life in jeopardy? Shouldn't I just go with the flow? They were camouflaged. One commentator, um, when I was researching for this, said this, the fault of Pergamum is the opposite of the fault of Ephesus. How narrow is the safe path between the sin of tolerance and the sin of intolerance? So with Ephesus, there was intolerance to um, doctrine that wasn't right, and in Pergamum, maybe there was too much tolerance and too much blending in. So what is the challenge to us? Well, the church at Pergamum had lost its cutting edge, its ability to say no to the surrounding culture. Are you so keen to fit in that you compromise your Christian walk or stay silent about your faith? Have you too much tolerance and too little discipline? Have you lost your cutting edge? Do you stand out? Do you stand out at work? Do people at work know you're a Christian? 
You guys at uni, have you already told your housemates that you're a Christian? Do people know who you trust in and what your faith is about? Or are you tempted to kind of just blend in because it's an easier life? In 1 Peter it says this, Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you know what, folks? It's not easy following Jesus in this world. It's not easy taking a stand for him. Yet that's what Jesus calls us to do and promises that he will be with us. He will give us his Holy Spirit to do that. So what would Jesus' message to us be? Well, again, it would be repent, to turn away from what we're doing, make our lives ring true by rededicating our lives to him and standing out for him. Let's go on to the next church. Thyatira. We're going to look at compromise in Thyatira. What was the city like? Well, here's a, here's a kind of a drawing of it. It's not, Thyatira is a kind of a, a less well-known city. Um, but if you think about the phrase, taking coals to Newcastle, um, which very clearly says that Newcastle was famous for that. Thyatira was similar. It was very famous for its, kind of, its trade guilds and especially um, kind of its, its smelting of copper and bronze. So you might be saying, oh, we're going to take bronze to Thyatira. Um, it, it sat at the centre of many smaller cities that were economically and politically bound to it. This is a drawing from 1860 of maybe what it might have looked like. There was the temple to Apollo as well, the pagan sun god, which was famous. And actually Jesus, in his, um, in his description, John in his letter, he talks about Jesus having feet of burnished bronze and eyes of blazing fire. And maybe he's contrasting the living god with the pagan sun god, Apollo. Here are some Roman remains maybe from the temple there. What was the church in the city like? Well, Jesus sees love Faith, service, and perseverance in the church. Yet, yet, like Pergamum, this church has fallen into immorality, compromise, and idol worship. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says this about the church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, the local businesses um, would often have been affiliated into kind of like trade guilds, which, um, in part of their activities, might have sort of semi-religious ceremonies or allegiances. I suppose a little bit like maybe the Masons would be nowadays, or that sort of thing. Maybe there were Christians who were involved in those, those businesses, those trade guilds, who were feeling that pressure to compromise. Now, whereas in the the last letter, um, Balaam from the Old Testament was quoted as the person that was sort of like a metaphor for the person that led God's people into sin, in this letter, it's the figure of Jezebel. Jezebel is ever the popular um, Christian name for daughters, Um, but Jezebel, um, if if you read in 1 Kings 16 verse 31... Or 2 Kings 9.22, she, like Balaam, seduced God's people into unfaithfulness and idolatry. Maybe this young and muddled Christian community had become convinced that maybe the spiritual freedom that they had as Christians meant that they could um, actually indulge in the rest of the activities that came with being part of these trade guilds. Maybe that included um, promiscuity and kind of pagan rituals. Maybe there was a, a lady within the church that was being, some of her ideas were being tolerated and she had mysterious new things to tell the church and some of these young Christians were, were getting sucked into this teaching. 
What's the challenge, though, for, for us? Well, maybe for some of you students at uni, maybe you've already mucked up. Um, you came to Winchester with, with kind of a real determination to live for him, and maybe you've already got sucked into stuff. Maybe you've already compromised. Maybe for some of our youth group, you're actually living with compromise in your life at the moment. You're doing things that actually go, I know this isn't right to be doing, but I'm still getting sucked into doing it. Maybe your lifestyle that you're living, you know, isn't God's best for you. What would Jesus say through 1 Peter? He says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge yourself with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Jesus would be encouraged, would want to encourage you. If you are trying to live for him, if you're at uni trying to live for him and not compromise, Jesus would say to you, well done, keep digging into me for strength. But if you feel that this is an area where God's got his finger on, Jesus would say to you, repent. Turn from what you're doing and walk in intimacy with him. Craig spoke about an area in his life that Jesus put his finger on at New Day. Maybe you might have areas that you're, even as I'm speaking, actually God's going, yeah, that's something where you're compromised in. Turn around, repent. Jesus will help you walk in godliness in a permissive and immoral culture. Right, let's go on to the next church. Corpses in Sardis. I try to have lots of C's for each point because that's what you're going to do, isn't it? So, corpses in Sardis. Well, what was the city like? Well, the city actually was fairly secure, fairly complacent, pretty untouched by persecution. It was situated kind of right high on top of a hill with really sheer cliffs going up to it. So actually, people who lived in the city thought they were pretty impregnable. That actually, if an enemy wanted to attack, there would have to be quite a strategic way of attacking this city. Um, And and actually, they were secure until one night, the invading Persian army about... um, got up in 546 BC and found a way up the sheer cliff into the city. I, I, the stories say it was actually because one of the soldiers on the, on the ramparts, he dropped his helmet and it rolled down the, a bit of the cliff and the, the invading army saw the soldier go down, collect it and go back up and saw a, a kind of a safer route up the, up the cliff to attack the city. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it sounds good. Um, so... Ben Lyon will be pleased to see that there was a, a gymnasium in the city. There's a, um, some of the remains in the city. So what was the church like? Well, as I said, um, that Jesus sometimes draws a, a contrast between the city and the church. Well, actually, the church was pretty secure and complacent. It was untouched by persecution. So far, they've been kind of good and bad in most of the churches we've looked at. But actually, Jesus has nothing good to say about Sardis. In fact, the only good thing about the church was her reputation, which was wrong, and there was no basis for it. So actually, there was nothing really good about Sardis. Christ's verdict is that she is dead. He tells her to wake up. She's like a corpse. Jesus says this, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. 
Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it, and repent. Everyone around regards the church as successful and flourishing and vibrant. All that is except for Jesus. So what's the challenge to us? Well, the gospel is an all-or-nothing thing, isn't it? Following Jesus is something that Jesus requires all our life, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. Jesus often, would, when he called his disciples, they would leave their life to run after him. One of the old elders here, Reg Hall, said to me when I first came, he said, Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. And actually, the gospel is like that. It's either all or nothing. This is what it says in Samuel. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesus could look on this church at Sardis that looked vibrant. Maybe they had an amazing youth ministry. Maybe they were reaching out to the city. Maybe they were full of lots of things. But actually Jesus could see the hearts and see, see that there's a lot of activity, but actually inside they were dead. That's quite challenging, isn't it? To kind of think about our own lives. Are the things that we're doing motivated by the Holy Spirit in us, our relationship with Jesus, or are they just good things to do because we know they're good things to do? It simply won't do just to bumble on, looking active but achieving little or nothing. Do you have a reputation for living for Jesus, but actually inside you're dead? Jesus would say to us, wake up and repent. Remember what you've been taught and live for Jesus. In James, one of my favorite books of the Bible, he says this, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But also we know that we can do stuff without faith inside. So Jesus' challenge would be, is there, a, is, is there a living relationship with him or are you a bit like a corpse? Philadelphia. We will gloss over Philadelphia because again, Jesus is very positive about the church there. So we're going to come on to the last church, which is Laodicea. Complacent in Laodicea. It's one of the most famous parts of the Bible, um, the stuff that Jesus says about the church here. So what was the city of Laodicea like? Well, it stood at the junction of important trade routes running north and south and east and west. Here's a picture of Syria Street, which was like a a, a big stone-paved street that ran east to west. And the city would have profited from regular traffic that went backwards and forwards through it. So it was fairly wealthy. It was the centre for banking. It was a a textile town. Um, In Laodicea, they had a certain type of black sheep that had a a wool of a special quality, and it was famous for clothing made from Laodicean wool. It also had a famous medical centre and was famous for a certain kind of eye ointment as well. And all these little things are picked up by Jesus, you'll notice, in the letter to Laodicea. One thing that it's most famous for is for being lukewarm. And I found it really fascinating to find out about the water in Laodicea. It was a strange, it had two, two kind of flows of water that came into it. There were, um, there were hot springs, 
There were hot springs nearby that would flow into the city. And here's the remains of a bit of the aqueduct that would have brought the water into Laodicea. Now, these hot springs started off hot a while back, uh, um, but actually by the time they got to Laodicea, over, they'd, have, they'd have been laden with lime and they'd have arrived lukewarm and sickly in the town. However, there were also supplies of water from the snow-capped Mount Cadmus nearby. Um, and that flowed through Colossae, And as it came through Colossae, it was lovely and cold and crisp. But by the time it got to Laodicea, through the Turkish heat, it had kind of warmed up and kind of got lukewarm. So they had kind of hot water that had cooled down and cold water that had warmed up. So actually, the water in Laodicea was kind of lukewarm, tepid, and not very nice to drink. I mean, if any of you have drunk a lukewarm Budweiser, you'll know what I mean. It's it's hardly worth putting to your lips. I think apart from Keisha mentioning it in a song recently, I don't think that actually uh, lukewarm Budweiser is worth even picking up. Um, so it was a funny kind of city, really, um, but it was a very proud city too. As I've mentioned, it was a centre of banking. It was a very wealthy city. There was an earthquake in AD 61, and after the earthquake, it actually refu- the city refused help from um, the surrounding cities to help rebuild it. They said, no, it's all right. We're fine. Thank you very much. We're, we're doing okay. We don't need any help with rebuilding. So it was fairly complacent. Does that reflect in the state of the church? Well, yes, it does. Jesus clearly contrasts the complacent state of the city, or he draws a parallel with that and the church. He says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. So the church makes Jesus vomit. I'm rich, you say. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. One commentator says, lukewarmness is the worst condition into which a church can sink. So what is the challenge to us? Well, complacency and lukewarmness makes Jesus sick. When we go to New Day every year with the youth, our younger youth go to um, their younger teaching, and there's a guy called Stephen Dawson who does the most sick games possible with young people. He often makes them drink things. You know, here's a refreshing glass of Coke and actually it's a cup of vinegar and they've got to race each other to drink it down. And and quite often, um, these kids are sick after the games. In fact, I think Cy was telling me about a girl whose new day was pretty much spoiled because her, her eyes hurt and she had to go home because she was in such a bad way. The games are great, but quite often, they make the contestants spew, okay? But actually, that's how Jesus says he feels about this church. They are so lukewarm that he wants to spit them out of his mouth. Do you think that you're rich in God when actually you're spiritually poor? Fillmore, in his commentary about Revelation, says this. He, as in God, hates it when Christians make great professions of faith but then follow up with cold apathy. He would prefer us to be upfront about our spiritual lethargy than to offer him a sickening mixture of fervent promise and half-hearted disobedience. God hates lying, even lies sung on a Sunday. In verse 19, the very fact that Jesus rebukes the church, though, shows that he still loves her. Isn't that encouraging? The Bible says those that God loves, he disciplines. So Jesus doesn't go, even with Laodicea, he doesn't go, I've given up on you. But he's still challenging them. He's rebuking them. So what would Jesus say to us? Well, he again would say, repent. 
Do you feel God's challenge to you about your life? Can you really be bothered? Maybe you're sitting there going, well, I can't be bothered to repent. Maybe then that's a sign that you're maybe a bit lukewarm to Jesus. So lastly, I just wanted to go on. What would Jesus say about us in Winchester? Well, let's have a think. What's our, what's our city like? Well, I've got some, some pictures here. Beautiful Winchester. It was nice chatting with some of the students. Some of them saying that they're enjoying the city. They really like the feel. I talked to someone who's come over from Florida as well and is loving, loving Winchester, which is fantastic. Um, Winchester, it's a lovely city, isn't it? It's a wealthy city, but there are pockets of need and deprivation, as we know from our soup service. It's a very historical city. Through the middle of Winchester is the life-giving River Itchen, that in a way was one of the causes of the settlement starting in the first place. And that's been channeled uh, over time through medieval times into different channels. So we have all the different brooks, upper, middle, lower brook. It's a city that's got this life-giving river all the way through it. What's Hope Church like? Well, maybe the best people to ask are some of the students who've come today. Maybe after the service this morning, as you say hello to some of the newer people, you could, you could ask them, what do, what do you think of the welcome this morning? What do you think of the worship and the preach? If you're interested, get stuck in. I just want to say to you students, getting involved in the CU at college is excellent, but getting plugged into a local church is fantastic. So as you do the tour around the city, make sure you settle out of church and you get stuck in from the very, very start. What would be the good things that Jesus points out amongst us in a church, as, as a church? What are the things that he commends us for? But what are the, where are the areas that Jesus might say, I know your deeds, I know, I know about that. Two weeks ago, John Groves reminded us that Jesus not only knows about the church, but he knows the individuals within that church. And through these letters in Revelation, often Jesus says, the church is like this, but there are some who've remained faithful. Or the church is like this, but there are some who are following this teaching. Within us, as a church, Jesus knows about the the subgroups, the groups, the individuals within the church. What would he say about us? Maybe we're aware of those areas and God this morning is putting his finger on those areas through his Holy Spirit. Maybe, like a couple of the churches, we're a bit ignorant of how we are. And actually this morning, maybe our prayer is, Lord, would you reveal to me where you want me to grow? Challenge me, speak to me. So what is the challenge to us? Individually and corporately. Well, if you're not a Christian here today, if you don't know Jesus... If you just come along to kind of, you're interested in, in Christianity, maybe you're, you might have just been walking past and just be popping in. Well, if you'd like to get to know Jesus, then Jesus says to you today, repent. Jesus often would say to people, turn from what you're doing. Repentance is turning around and walking the other way. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you could get to know him. You could repent. You could turn around from your life and get to know him as your living Lord and Saviour. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, call ourselves followers of Jesus, what are we like? Is your challenge today that you are cool? You've become cool towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is your challenge that you're camouflaged, that you're not actually standing out and living a life for him? Is your challenge that you've become compromised? There are areas of your life that you know, no, this is is not right. I feel the challenge from God about that. Are you a bit like a corpse? Actually, is that heart that once was beating for Jesus, has that kind of gone, gone silent? And actually, Jesus promises he can wake you up today. Have you become complacent? 
Are you a bit lukewarm, neither here nor there with him? So my main point is that we've all got areas, individually and corporately, into which we can slip. We might have areas that we're permanently living in. But Jesus wants to help us to overcome them in his grace and in the strength of his spirit. He says, to he who overcomes. So Steve's just going to come up and pray for us. And what I'd like us to do is to individually respond to that challenge of Jesus. Should we just, should we just stand together? Afterwards, there'll be a prayer team. If you, if you actually really want to, you think actually God's on me and wants me to respond physically, then do come and grab some people. There'll be some people who'd love to pray for you at the end of the service. But actually, we're just going to spend a bit of time now as Steve prays for us, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us, that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And if the worship band come up as well. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are alive and you're living and you're active in the world today. Thank you that you are interested in us personally. Thank you that you're interested in us as a church. Thank you that you're interested in this city. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have eyes of blazing fire that penetrate and look right into our very hearts, the very heartbeat of uh, the church, into our hearts. You know what we're like. You know the motives. You know when we say things, you really know what the motives are. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you never write us off. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you speak to us and you sent those letters because you wanted them to change. We're never written off. We thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that through your death and resurrection, Jesus, there is hope. There is hope for change. And so, Lord Jesus, we say to you, where we have been cool and uh, we've been doing the right things, but inside we've just gone cool. Lord Jesus, we say right now, Lord Jesus, we want to be hot for you. We want to burn brightly for you in these days. We want to love you with all our hearts. Lord Jesus, where we've been camouflaged and we've blended in and others around us would hardly know what we believe or don't believe. Oh, they go to church, but don't know what they believe. Lord, where we've hidden away from eyes around just simply because whatever, there's something going on in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we don't want to be camouflaged anymore. We want to be different people. We want to stand out. We want to shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. Lord Jesus, where we've been compromised, Lord Jesus, where we've cut corners. Lord Jesus, maybe we've even done it in these last weeks where we've let you down and we've compromised and crossed boundaries we know we should have. Lord Jesus, we say thank you that there's forgiveness. Forgive us. We don't want to compromise anymore. We don't want to cut corners anymore. We want to stand up for you. Lord Jesus, we're inside. We're we're just dead inside. And situations and circumstances, they seem to have squeezed the life of God out of us and we feel dead inside. Lord Jesus, we say breathe your life into us today. We don't want to be like that anymore. We don't want to be like that anymore. And Lord Jesus, where we have been complacent, where we have been smug and proud and arrogant and relied on our own strength, Lord Jesus, we say we don't want to be like that. Forgive us. Lord Jesus, we want to be those who trust in you, rely on you, not rely on our own abilities and 
strength. Lord Jesus, change us by your spirit. Lord Jesus, we say thank you that you speak to us today and that your word is living and active and sharper than any that speaks into our hearts and lives, speaks into the life of the church. Lord Jesus, we want to be individuals that shine for you. Lord Jesus, we want to love you passionately. We want to be a church that's passionate about you, that honor you. Lord Jesus, come and have your way with us. We respond to you this morning. We turn to you. We're going to sing, and as we sing this, let's make this our response to God. If you've got children in the crowd.